Hey, this is Imogen Benny. Uh, you are listening to Storybound. I was asked to improvise an introduction, and all I can think of to introduce myself is that I was just diagnosed with, I think, hypothyroidism, which explains why I've been so tired for the last couple of years. So I'm feeling pretty stoked about that diagnosis. That was author Imogen Binney, and as you can tell, this is going to be a very fun episode. She'll be reading from her book, Nevada. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound. Cool. Um... First question, uh, what's your sleep schedule like? Have you Are you getting good sleep these days? <laughs> God, no. I'm usually in bed by like 9 or 10, not really by choice, but just because I'm exhausted. We have a setup right now where my partner is sleeping in one room. You can, I guess, on a podcast, you can't see the door across the hall. But my partner is sleeping on like in the next room over with our two kids who are five and two. And um, uh, she takes them in the night because one is nursing and she's nursing with them. And... Um, they come into my room at 6 a.m. And so I'm up at, say, I mean, I usually hear them before then, but the official is that I'm like going downstairs and making breakfast and trying to manage the chaos at 6 a.m. every day. So yeah, sleep is wild. Has it been kind of life-changing just to have this family in your life? I mean, reading through Nevada, Nevada goes through all these like different relationships. You know, you wrote Nevada a long time ago. It would have been 2013 when it was first published, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a therapist, right? I became a therapist, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago. I was like, I'm never doing another retail Christmas. And I um, went to grad school and becoming a therapist didn't put like, put this idea in my head as much as like enable me to articulate it. But like, for me, the main lens of understanding people is like through compassion, right? Like kind of, I don't know, I do a lot of like dialectical behavioral therapy in my work and other stuff. And one of the assumptions in dialectical behavioral therapy that always gets to me, is it okay that I'm just like diving into this shit? No, that's actually, I was going to ask you because I, I read that you had majored in psych and I didn't expect this whole deep dive. So this is actually, I was, I'm glad, <laughs> please, please. And also I've been in therapy since I was seven years old and I was diagnosed with like clinical depression at a young age. And then oh, dang. I've done EMDR therapy, I've done psychotherapy, tons of wide ranges for the last like 20 years of my life so oh yeah so you are familiar with this stuff yeah one of the the like base assumptions in dialectical behavioral therapy is like kind of no matter what it looks like that the client is doing the best they can um and it's not like up to the therapist to judge the decisions they're making like but instead to trust this person is like doing the best they can to feel as okay as they can and that might look like very self-destructive or whatever and so from that perspective i feel like you know Maria is constantly asking like, or like she's, she's poking at what she does know. Like it's a loose tooth in her mind. She can't stop going over these things that hurt and like trying to push herself to feel better. Right. And they're sort of, the question is like, what is the block? Why can't Maria feel better? Right. Like what is there? And I think there are a lot of, I don't know. I don't like have a single easy answer for that. I mean, a lot of it is trans stuff and trans stuff comes with a lot of complicated experiences. And like mm -hmm. that journey is long and painful. And I don't know if there is an end point. So this is from my novel, Nevada. This is chapter two. Trans women 
in real life are different from trans women on television. For one thing, when you take away the mystification, misconceptions, and mystery, they're at least as boring as everybody else. Oh, neurosis. Oh, trauma. Oh, look at me. My past messed me up, and I'm still working through it. Despite the impression you might get from daytime talk shows and dumb movies, there isn't anything particularly interesting there. Although, of course, Maria may be biased. She wishes other people could understand that without her having to tell them. It's always impossible to know what anyone's assumptions are. People tend to assume that trans women are either drag queens and loads of trashy fun, or else sad, pathetic, and deluded, pervy straight men, at least until they save up their money and get their sex change operations, at which point they become just like every other woman or something. But Maria's like, dude, hi, nobody ever reads me as trans anymore. Old straight men hit on me when I'm at work. And in all these years of transitioning, I haven't even been able to save up for a decent pair of boots. This is what it's like to be a trans woman. Maria works in an enormous used bookstore in Lower Manhattan. It is a terrible place. The owner is this very rich, very mean woman who is perpetually either absent or micromanaging. The managers under her have all been miserable under her for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, which means they are assholes to Maria and everybody else who works there under them. It's kind of a famous old-timey bookstore that's been around forever. Maria's been working there for something like six years. People quit all the time because not everybody can deal with the abuse that comes from this job. Maria, though, is so emotionally closed off and has so much trouble having any feelings at all that she's like, well, it's union. I'm making enough to afford my apartment, and I know how to get away with pretty much anything I want to get away with. I'm not leaving unless they fire me. But when she started working there, she was like, hello, I'm a dude, and my name is the same as the one that's on my birth certificate. Then, when she had been working there a year or two, she had this kind of intense and scary realization for a really long time, as boring and cliched as this is. But for as long as she could remember, she had felt all fucked up. So she wrote about it. She laid out and connected all these dots, the sometimes I want to wear dresses dot, the I am addicted to masturbation dot, the I feel like I have been punched in the stomach when I see an unselfconscious pretty girl dot dot dot, the I cried a lot when I was little and I don't think I've cried at all since puberty dot, lots of other dots dot dot, a constellation of dots, the oh man, do I get more fucked up than I mean to every time I start drinking dot. The I might hate sex dot 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 dot. So she figured out that she was trans, told people she was changing her name, got on hormones. It was very difficult and rewarding and painful. Whatever. It was a very special episode. The point is just, there are people at her job who remember when she was supposed to be a boy, who remember when she transitioned, and who might at any point tell any of the new people who come to work with her that she is trans, and then... She has to do damage control because remember, how is she supposed to know what weird ideas these people have about trans women? Like, what if they are a liberal and they want to show how much compassion they have? I have this trans friend instead of, hey trans friend, I like you, let's have a three-dimensional human relationship. That's what it's like to be a trans woman. Never being sure who knows you're trans or what that knowledge would even mean to them being on unsure, weird social footing. And it's not even like it matters if somebody knows you're trans. Who cares? You just don't want your hilarious, charming, complicated weirdo self to be erased by ideas people have in their heads that were made up by like hack TV writers or even hackier internet porn writers. It just sucks having to educate people. 
Sound familiar? Trans women have the exact same shit that everybody else in the world has who isn't white, het, male, able-bodied, or otherwise privileged. It's not glamorous or mysterious. It's boring. Maria is totally exhausted by it and bored of it. And if you're not, she is sorry. Terribly, appallingly, sarcastically, uselessly, and pointlessly sorry. Yeah, so do I connect to Maria? For sure. I mean, she's a fictional character and she is where she's at and she does where what she does in order to make a narrative work, right? Like it is a book. This isn't the autobiography that some people have assumed it is or like... Mm-hmm the the long blog post that some people have assumed that it is but yeah on some level she is like very close to my younger self and the younger selves of like a lot of people i've known or like not even younger selves the selves of lots of people that i've known so i do feel connected to her it is written in such a deeply personal way and i never assume going into anything that it's whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I started out trying to write books when I was like 14. And so a lot of the stuff, it was all fiction. But if someone who knew me read it, they'd be like, oh, I think you got this from this and this from that. And that was always very annoying because it's like, well, I'm not actually trying to hide my life or anything. It's just there's some percentage of your imagination, some percentage of your truth, and some percentage of what you observe from other people. Chapter eight. Maria misses Steph in the morning. Steph has a grown-up job, so she's up and gone before Maria wakes up, which is funny because usually sunlight, a car horn, her own breathing, anything will wake Maria up. Good work last night, Whiskey. Too bad you can't make sleep as restful as you make it deep. Turns out Piranha texted Maria last night, too. Fuck. 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 Mostly, her texts are just a bunch of cussing because Piranha knows that Maria likes cuss words. She's a good friend. But last night she was like, dude, where are you? Maria texts back. Sorry, dude. Hang out soon? She's exhausted and feels half dead, but that's really not new. Her alarm leaves her exactly enough time to shave, put on makeup, and get out the door. There's a schedule for sleeping as late as you can if you're economical enough with your time in the morning. She slept in her clothes, which saves her almost four minutes of getting dressed. She got very cold one night at Camp Trans the year that she went and put on all of her clothes. A dress, a long skirt, jeans, a hoodie, that denim jacket. It ended up being kind of a great outfit. Plus, jeans and multiple skirts means no stress about, like, anatomy. It basically became her uniform, like she'll change her underwear. It's hard to admit, but she has exactly one bra that she likes and a bunch that she hates, so she wears the same bra every day. But theoretically, you could change your bra too. You just rotate out a dress or put on the other hoodie and voila, new outfit. Same clothes every day. It's a non-appropriative mantra. She's even gotten good at riding a bike in a long skirt. Because shaving and putting on a bunch of foundation every day are emotionally exhausting reminders of being trans, she gets a step removed from them by monologuing like she's explaining them to someone. Secret trick number one is to boil water in a kettle on the stove while you get dressed and brush your teeth. Then stop up the sink and make yourself a little boiling lake. If the water is so hot that it truly hurts your fingers when you splash it on your face and you kind of worry that you're doing permanent damage to your skin, you are doing it right. Super hot water makes the shave closer. Who knows why? Maybe like how you have to warm up a tortilla before you can make anything out of it? Anyway, then you smear shaving cream all over your face. Use the cheapest stuff you can find. Sometimes Barbasol has a kind that says real man on the side. That's the best one. 
Shave your face with one of those triple blade razors. They're expensive, but you can reuse them for like a couple weeks. You'll know it's time to replace the blade when your face is a gory mess every day after you shave and you keep thinking, you want blood moon magic, but you only bleed a couple days a month? I bleed every day from my face. Anything more than three blades is for rich people. Secret tip number two is to get some of that face lotion stuff that smells like an old lady. After you've shaved and washed off your face, glob it on everywhere and give your face time to suck it in. It makes your skin softer, which helps gross middle-aged businessmen slumming in your store to know that you are the one to hit on. For makeup. Okay, if you still need to shave, you're still going to have a little bit of like beard shadow on your face. A lot of people will tell you to slather on tons and tons of foundation or the trick where you put lipstick all over your head and then cover it in foundation, but they are stupid. The truth is that nobody is going to look at your chin very hard, so all you need is normal foundation you can get at Sephora. The cheapest stuff there, powder foundation, liquid foundation, who cares? Get it all over your face, your nose, down your throat to past where your fur ends. Sometimes you can get lucky at the drugstore, but mostly you just want the cheapest stuff at the fancy store. If everything else is working right, heavy layers of makeup are more of a this person is trans sign than the implication that there's a mustache hibernating under that foundation. Secret trick number three is to get as much eye makeup on your eyes as you can. People will disagree about this, but fuck them. It took years of research, but the current theory on the reason this works, and complementarily why lipstick makes you look all unhinged, is that you're drawing the beholder's eye toward your eyes away from your beard shadow area. Lipstick draws the eye toward the bottom of the face where the hibernating stubble lives. Fuck that. So put lots of black shit around your eyes like Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club. You will look kind of goth. Do you want to? If not, here is secret thing number four. Sparkles. 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 Apparently, sparkles. sparkles on a trans woman are kind of a cliche, but this is the thing. The truth that underlies all of this makeup advice. Nobody is expecting to see a trans person. Girls are allowed to wear sparkles on their eyes. If you wear lots of sparkles and like blood red lipstick without foundation and a low cut shirt that shows off a flat expanse of chest, then yes, people will heckle you and try to intimidate you. But nobody expects trans women to be wearing sparkles, to have fucked up growing out dye job and tons of dikey punk shit covering every inch of their skin. Maria is tall and thin though. She's already getting the benefit of the doubt. None of this stuff might work for you. This ritual takes five minutes from the time the kettle starts whining. There's a lot more story and conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Storybound with author Image and Benny. She's reading from her book, Nevada, and we are talking about life, the universe, and everything. I wound up going to kind of a hippie grad school called Goddard, where you design your own curriculum. And my focus actually was very much on like the history of just like constructions of transsexuality and like the history of like what being trans has looked like in the DSM and in like Weimar Germany and just like all these histories. It was very much like, how did we get to this point? And 
you know, I started grad school in 2012, I think, 2011 or 2012, mm -hmm. which is a decade ago at this point. And it was like, it was, it feels like it was so much more than a decade ago in terms of the psychological literature, if not like the cultural location, which feels just like, I don't even know how to parse, but. I, I mean, I can't even imagine a decade ago what it would be like studying this and going to this in university. I feel like universities, there was a lot more open-minded environment around that time, but did you ever feel like you were in a very lonely corner? Did you feel like you had uh, a lot of colleagues who or mentors or other people around you who were supportive? No, it was rough. It was super rough. And like, I have a lot of damage around like trying to let people in around trans stuff and having it go badly. Right. And so I tend to be pretty defended when I'm in situations that I don't really know people. And so it was very hard to let people in during that process. I wasn't getting the pushback that I expected. I think I went in with this, like, I am punk rock and I am going to destroy the system attitude. Like, I'm going to go get a master's degree so I can smash everything. <laughs> but I think around the time that I was doing that work, a lot of other people were having the same impulse, right? And in retrospect, people had been doing that kind of work prior to, like, I wasn't the first person to go to grad school to be like, I want to, like, actually do right by a marginalized experience that I experience. Since then, like 2016, the American Psychological Association published guidelines on therapists working for trans clients that are like, good, like they acknowledge that non-binary people exist. And they acknowledge the like impact of colonial gender systems on constructions of being trans and all these things. And when that happened, it was really like, oh, shit, okay, I feel like I am a part of this thing. Mm -hmm. In terms of institutional understandings, like the AMA and the American Psychological Association, to some extent, have like more or less caught up. I mean, there are always jerks around, you know, but yeah, I kind of thought I was going to be doing research and going into like academia. And I wound up doing my internship. My internship was part of my degree at a psychiatric hospital. And I wound up loving it. I was like, fuck, this is great. I want to do group therapy with people who have like severe borderline personality disorder and like suicidality and all of the other kind of things that were going on. I was surprised because I thought I was going to be like a therapist or like a psychologist or, mm. you know, very much like mental health world. And my, my job description at the hospital was social worker. And there's a lot of overlap between social work and psychology work, right? This is not where I expected this conversation to go. This is, let me know if you want to take it somewhere else, but I don't get to talk about this very often. As you're talking about this, I mean, uh, for the first time in my life, I'm actually, well, I attempted once in my life, but I ended up, when I when I tried group therapy the first time around, I ended up becoming the, the quietest person in the room and I found myself being very bitter and very negative in my head and I went into a place of self-hatred. And so I'm entering group therapy actually for the really Really the, the the first time here soon and it's it's interesting to hear that my experience was in the context of a psychosis like a closed door psych hospital right where people mm -hmm. either have like had suicide attempts or are there because they're very close to a suicide attempt or whatever else is going on mm -hmm. um and that led to them you know being committed to a hospital that they can't leave without permission and so people were at a specific kind of place when i was doing that therapy but it was fucking cool to to just like be able to be like you know, I see you're talking about this thing. This touches back to what this other person was saying. Do you all like feel like there's any connection there? And really like often I think the experience of group therapy is nobody wants to talk and then somebody talks and like if it resonates and if it goes the way it's supposed to be, like people start to feel like, oh shit, I see in you, like not exactly what I've experienced, but like uh, something that is not too far from what I've experienced. And when I've experienced it, I've experienced it on this very solitary level. And so like to feel even that small degree of connection with someone is like, it can be really powerful.
Makeup secret from a trans woman number five, take pills. She used to have a pretty strong body back when she was an energetic little college kid who looked like a dude and journaled obsessively about gender in top secret notebooks all day, every day. But now she is old, almost 30, and she's been going sleepless and depressed and drunk for so long that her body starts feeling like it's collapsing at the slightest provocation. Seriously, the sun hurts her eyes. Her belly feels like old dry leaves turning wet while they rot and her shoulders throb from just a 40 and a little whiskey but she's gotta be at work. So, Adderall. Riding into Manhattan takes longer than usual because she usually has a beer or two or a glass of whiskey before bed, not a 40 in a flask. She gets into work late. Oops. They are probably looking for reasons to fire her because she's been here so long and she's gotten so many mandatory union raises that she can almost afford food and rent. So being late is kind of a big deal. Like, when you're in the union, they can't just fire you. The three career paths at the bookstore are either you get fired before you can even join the union, or you join the union and rack up legitimate infractions like lateness until you are fired, or else you are promoted to management, leave the union, and then are fired on a whim. So fuck promotions and fuck career advancement. You just shelve books for enough years, collecting annual $1 raises until you die rich. There's more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You're listening to Storybound. We've been talking with author Imogen Binney about her book, Nevada. And now we're going to be talking about movies or wherever the LSR conversation is headed. <laughs> you know, I, I don't keep up with anything as much as i used to before i had kids but sure you know like hereditary how many times have i watched hereditary it's so good it's so intense and so beautiful wow like, i did not see that coming you, you watch hereditary like <laughs> casually you're like man i can't wait to no <laughs> not casually no but like a friend she said something kind of offhand i don't think she was even thinking very hard about it but she was kind of like you know, I came to see my experience of being drawn to horror movies as a kind of self-harm. And so I've been trying to watch comedies intentionally instead. And I was like, huh, that blew my mind a little bit. That's really smart. Yeah. And like, how do I feel after I watch a horror movie before bed? Right. And right. Um, again, not like trying to put anything on you, but just talking about my own experience with this mm -hmm. stuff. It's kind of like, do I feel good after I watch a horror movie? And it, like historically, I haven't felt bad. Anything that was... Like I loved uh, Dead Alive, Peter Jackson's old, like, very <laughs> totally. very gory. Like lawnmower. yeah, the lot yeah the lawnmower scene. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I loved when it got into complete schlock like that. Before our 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 call is over, I want to just like at least thank you for doing this. Yeah, totally. I feel like I could talk about this for a lot longer. This is really interesting and. Uh, also, thank you for being vulnerable about your own stuff on this. That is like not always easy. So thank you for talking for like yeah, being real about this stuff with me. If it helps anyone or anyone connects with it, it's what keeps me going, keeps me alive. So I'll end on a quote with Robert Sapolsky that I recently heard or years ago was, mm. what was an unexpected pleasure yesterday is what we feel entitled to today and what won't be enough tomorrow. And I say that because conversations like these are far and few in between. And I appreciate you diving deep in with me today. And I will try and be appreciative of that for the days to come and know that it, it's not always going to happen. But yeah, that quote, I mean, it's so Sapolsky, 
knows what he's talking about. And that's a good quote. And yeah, my question is always like, how do we not feel entitled? Right? Like I've worked through a lot of entitlement stuff in my life and it still comes up feeling mm-hmm. entitled to like, I don't know, pleasure. This, I mean, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to make us talk for another fucking half hour by like <laughs> going into this topic you just started. I know. So yeah, again, thank you so much for having me on. This is a great conversation and thanks for letting me go off so much. I really appreciate a chance to talk about this stuff. Thank you to Imogen Binney for reading from her book, Nevada, and also for chatting about everything under the sun. Nevada is now available in hardcover at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to Claire Tobin and our friends at FSG Books and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering for this episode were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. Oh, and about that, we have two episodes left this season. We really appreciate you listening. We appreciate all your kind comments and reaching out to us. We'll see you soon.